Hi, I'm Sheldon Kennedy, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast, The Sheldon Kennedy Show. These episodes will feature honest and open conversations with notable guests who will share their stories, subject matter expertise, and insights on the many social issues we face today. This podcast is presented by Respect Group. Founded in 2004, Respect Group empowers people to recognize and prevent bullying, abuse, harassment, and discrimination through interactive online education. To date, over 1.6 million Canadians have been Respect certified in sport, schools, and the workplace. Now, I'm delighted to introduce our second guest on the show, Gretchen Kerr. Gretchen Kerr, PhD, is a professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education at the University of Toronto and a co-director of the Canadian Gender Equity and Sport Research Hub. She has devoted her career to researching maltreatment and promoting safe, equitable sport opportunities for all. Gretchen's recent work includes a prevalent study of maltreatment among national team members and contributions to the Universal Code of Conduct to prevent and address maltreatment a policy mandated by Sport Canada. For 30 years, she has served as an athlete welfare officer investigating complaints of athlete maltreatment. That's very impressive, 30 years. And I remember we, uh, Gretchen, welcome to to the podcast. It's it's, it's an honour to uh, to have you join me with your, your knowledge around uh, uh, the issues of, of maltreatment. It's an honour to have you with us today. Oh, thanks, Sheldon. It's an honor to be here and uh, to talk about the work we've we've both been dedicated to for so long. That's right. I know it uh, seems, you know, when you look back, I was just reading your uh, the last line there in your bio and, you know, 30 years, an athlete welfare officer investigating complaints of maltreatment, athlete maltreatment, like the change that you have you've must have seen over the last 30 years in the area of, you know, maltreatment and the way that it's, you know, it was um, seen and, and addressed and has, must be a, incredible. Well, it's, I think it's sort of a mixed picture, Sheldon. Um, in, in some ways, the, the awareness of, uh, harmful experiences in sport has grown. I think uh, generally the public at large is more aware that although sport can be a wonderful experience and is a wonderful experience for so many, uh, for some it can also create a lot of harm. And I think that that growing public awareness is a very good thing. On the other hand, um, we we still struggle with some of the challenges that we faced 30 years ago, and um, uh, still waiting for for progress. So I think it's sort of a mixed picture. Yeah, and what what would those uh, what would you identify as the the things that we're waiting for, uh, Gretchen? The, the thing that we're waiting for in the progress. Well, you know, when when you revealed your story, there was a, a flurry of activity um, and attention within the sport community, um, and actually uh, lots of public pressure on the sport to do better. And at that time, 
uh, all national sport organizations were required to have publicly accessible, we called it harassment then, uh, harassment policies and trained independent harassment officers to deal with these sorts of concerns. Um, and sport organizations had to meet these requirements in order to receive their funding from Sport Canada. And a study we did 25 years later indicated that those requirements had fallen by the wayside and sport organizations, for very good reasons, um, were no longer meeting those requirements. The The upshot of that is that athletes who experience harm in sport often have nowhere to go, um, or at least nowhere that they perceive as being safe and neutral and helpful to them. When the only place they can go is back to the same sport organization right. that is creating the harms in the first place, it's really not a viable alternative. And the athletes have been really clear that they won't take their concerns there. So uh, we're still waiting. You know, we're, we're hearing lots of of indications that mm -hmm. this is coming, but we're still waiting for an independent body separate from the sport organizations that um, provides a safe place for athletes to go with their concerns. So that's something we're still waiting for. So like in the, in the, like where, would the, where would the athletes go right now, uh, Gretchen? Like where would they, where would they feel? Is there a place that they would feel uh, safe to bring a concern forward um, in sport lens today? Like, is, is there that place or w where would they have to seek that out? Well, you know, our, our research looking at this very question tells us that athletes either don't know where to go or the sport organization has identified someone in the sport organization, but that person also is an employee of mm -hmm. the sport organization. Uh, and in some cases, it's the CEO, which is just crazy making because it's also the CEO who hires the staff um, who, who are often the, the perpetrators of the harm in the first place. So the current system is riddled with conflicts of interest and the athletes are well aware of this. Well, and I think that would be a risk to, if we're talking a little bit about risk management for the organization, I mean, I think it's a little bit, uh, you know, th there's a little bit of risk of them being the, the go-to for, for complaints, because I don't feel that there's, you know, the qualified expertise uh, in that space to a do the proper investigations or to be able to, um, um, you know, handle the a lot of times delicate issues and sensitive issues uh, that come in front of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and when we discovered that the Sport Canada requirements of the 1990s were no longer adhered to, um, it. it it was for those reasons, you know, sport organizations typically don't have the resources to hire someone with this kind of expertise. Um, it's, it, it's an add on to, um, 
sport organizations that uh, are already struggling on a shoestring budget. And these kinds of cases require a tremendous amount of time and a tremendous amount of specialized expertise. Um, and so some organizations have, have to their credit, um, involved independent investigators. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a step forward. Then the question becomes, where does the report from the independent investigator go and how are actions based on that report taken? And, and if the answers to those questions are, it goes back to the sport organization, then we're back to square one with conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, and, and you and I have had this conversation before and, and, uh, uh, you know, my friend uh, Wayne, we've talked about this, but, you know, and, and we see it across our country and, and abroad, but, you know, there's so many good people uh, that that give their time and that are engaged in sport and want to be in sport for the right reasons. And, and I think, I think that, I, I don't think, I feel that, you know, maybe we don't always recognize uh, um, or empower or give the tools to, I believe, the majority of those that coach or that administer or that volunteer um, to support them to do the right things and to keep them engaged. And, you know, and I feel that that's, you know, something missing. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm so glad you raised this because I, I think this is the crux of the challenge we're facing now in, in this safe sport movement, if I can call it that. The, I mentioned earlier that it was, it was a good thing that more attention was devoted to the harms experienced by athletes. Um, and that was, that's necessary. At the same time, um, that recognition must also come with the recognition that the vast, vast majority of people involved in sport are there for the right reasons. They're behaving ethically. They're not causing harm to other individuals. Um, and uh, I think this safe sport movement has kind of lost sight of, of that. You know, the, the first step in in helping people recognize um, what is harmful and, and the changing norms around what is harmful was identifying prohibited behavior. And, and that's essentially what constitutes the universal code of conduct to prevent and address maltreatment. And identifying prohibited behavior is a really important first step because, you know, norms have changed. Um, just like they have in the classroom and, and parenting, um, expected conduct has changed in sport. So, so that's a really important first step. But, but where it's left us is identifying what behaviors people can't or shouldn't use, but we haven't helped them with what are the best practices? You know, what are, what do we substitute some of those old traditional or traditionally accepted methods, what do we replace them with? And and I think that's the the next step for the safe sport movement. That's the challenge before us. How do we ensure you know safe, 
high quality, inclusive, welcoming experiences for everybody, not just the athletes, but, you know, the coaches, the administrators, the, the volunteers and so on. That's the next challenge. Well, and yeah, and, and I, a hundred percent agree uh, with with you on this, uh, Gretchen. And I think, you know, through my experience, um, you know, in regards to these issues, and and to be able to, um, you know, help people be different, uh, because this is not about perfect. I think this is about progress, and we need to, you know, continually try to get, you know, make it better uh, with what we have in front of us and the knowledge. Uh, that we have in front of us. And I mean, you know, the excuse, uh, not doing it today. I mean, we know better today. And I think when we look at what we're trying to do and what you just talked about, what hit me, um, um, was, um, you know, this is a taught skill, like this is skill development. Um, you know, this is, this is a, this is a skill that we need to give and teach and, and be persistent on. It reminds me of, you know, when we look at integrated practice, we talk about integrated practice when we, you know, we work in a child advocacy centers and we have, you know, the police officers, the child and family services workers, the healthcare workers. And just because we put people in the same building doesn't mean uh, that they're going to work together and that they even know how to do it. And, you know, one thing that really, you know, that experience really taught me was that, you know, even though we have some of the best of the best people that work in this space and investigate difficult crimes and, and cases and so forth, they need help to learn to work a different way. And I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, we, we know, for example, that um, uh, most athletes, if they go on to coaching, they coach the way they were coached. And um, it's it, it just won't work that way anymore because uh, society has has different expectations of us in the same way that, you know, heaven forbid that teachers now taught the way I was taught as a young child where um, the principal could still strike a student as punishment. Um, you know, those norms have changed and, and sport is no different. So we're, we're all accustomed to, um, the, the practice, for example, of using exercise as punishment. Um, you know, the team didn't perform well or, uh, the kids are goofing around, not paying attention. And we apply exercise as punishment, whether it's bag skating and hockey or, suicides in basketball, you know, that's something that I think we've, we've just all grown up with. Well, now, you know, we know that punishment is not effective in the long term. It, it doesn't help kids learn what is the appropriate behavior. It doesn't keep people in sport because it takes away the enjoyment and it causes negative feelings in relationships. So, we, we now know that discipline is a far more effective strategy. And that's where parenting has gone. That's where the education system has gone. And so we have before us in sport a challenge to bring 
um, you know, kind of standardized expected conduct up to today's norms. Um, and, and of course, there's also so many other societal changes that are encouraging us to think differently about how sport is designed and, and delivered. You know, the whole Me Too movement mm-hmm. has led us to think about how power should and shouldn't be used. Um, the um, Black Lives Matter, you know, should stimulate us to think about how can we make sport more inclusive and safe for everybody. These are the types of questions we need to wrestle with. Yeah, and and I, you know, I agree, uh, Gretchen, that, you know, there is a lot in front of us and 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 all good right and i think you know the the balancing act um and you know again uh, you know we've had this conversation uh, prior but you know how do we how do we make sure that we you know continually focus on you know the black lives matter the me too's the equity and diversity and inclusion piece of it but also make sport uh, not overwhelming for those that want to get involved to just come and help out. Yeah, that's, that's such an important question because um, as we know, there's such a huge volunteer base in, in sport and it's really tough to ask volunteers or, you know, those coaches who are paid a very small honorarium, but Mm -hmm devote huge amounts of time and energy to to making sport run uh, it's tough to ask them to do a lot of training and so on um and and i think we would do well to kind of flip the question and and rather than talk about um uh all the harmful experiences to be avoided and how to avoid them um, and talking about prohibited conduct, we should really flip the lens. And, and if we're going to run training, it should be on, you know, what do we know about how to create safe, inclusive, welcoming spaces? And if we yeah. did that, um, so many other uh, side effects, positive side effects would occur, including you know, retaining people in sport and performance outcomes, uh, because that is a that is a something that everybody in sport wants. They want to perform well, um, but that should be a byproduct of the environment. It shouldn't be something that creates the environment. So I think you're absolutely right. Um, we we need to uh, support people and help them along. Um, and and really focus on how to create those positive environments that that are the the um, means by which we get to the outcomes we want. I uh, so right before we started started the podcast, we were kind of running through how we were you know going to go how we were going to go about uh, you know what the the order the order of uh, of uh, detail was going to be. So I said to Gretchen, when I mentioned to you, Gretchen, I said, okay, well, we'll start with the icebreaker. (laughs) (laughs) 
the icebreaker question. So I don't know, we're like 20 minutes in and I haven't asked the icebreaker question. So, you know, I want to get to know you a little bit too, Gretchen. So, um, you know, I know sport, I mean, 30 years you've been in, involved in sport. Um, you know, you, I'm sure you've traveled around the world and, um, um, you know, is there a place, you know, is there a place that, uh, um, you know, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would that be? Oh, my goodness. Um, hmm. Well, I, I still think Canada is a pretty special mm. place. Um, so I still think that would be my first choice. Um, I'm always intrigued by the Scandinavian countries mm. and I, I've heard from Scandinavian friends that our image of Scandinavia is not necessarily um, as positive in reality as our <laughs> images of it but I, I you know I love the way that um, they create um, how their their philosophy and practice around um, raising kids, the social support network, the integration of physical activity into their lifestyles. Um, you know, all those things are are pretty appealing uh, to me, but I, I'm happy right here in Canada. Yes, I feel the same way, Gretchen. I'm... Uh... Mm -hmm. Been around, been around the world lots. I'm always happy when the when the wheels touch down in in uh, in Canada for sure. I yeah. uh, I see another icebreaker question here. Do you have any hidden talents, Gretchen? <laughs> well, I played the piano. Yes, and I was a former gymnast. And it was always my goal to, um, you know, be able to, to maintain some of those skills. Of course, I've lost 99% of them, but yeah. I was determined to reach the age of 60 and still be able to do cartwheels and handstands and round offs and so on. And I can still do those. So I'm right really on. pleased about that. <laughs> At 60, that's unreal. My next goal is to be able to do them at 65. So the, the window of the, the, um, goal period is shortening, but I'm, I'm going to aim for it, Sheldon. <laughs> right on. Well, that's, you know what, that's inspiring. And I, I, my mom, um, who, you know, was an athlete in our family I and mean, she was eight, she turned 80, uh, last year and her goal was to, she does a around she does a, a water ski around the lake every year so she wanted to get up at 80 so uh she got up at 80 and i'll tell you some of it was the first time that we'd had a lot of the grandkids together in a long time and, oh. and uh, they saw grandma at 80 get up in there on the water skis and the old jaws hit the hit the beach <laughs> as they saw her get up there just like you know it's inspiring it's inspiring oh. Totally. Good for her. Good yeah. for her. And yes. and we got to keep these goals, right? Whether you meet yes. them or not, it's important to have them. Well, and I think if anything, this pandemic and, you know, from, you know, and we learned a little bit about that with our first guest, uh, Marco from Jumpstart. But I mean, you know, I think if it has been clear how important sport and, and you know, and activities uh, are, uh, 
in our lives, all of our lives, uh, especially through this pandemic, I think it's really highlighted the importance and need, um, you know, for a healthy, healthy sport and activity um, in, in our communities and in our lives. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, we're, we're um, the quality of life that's been missing simply because of the lack of opportunities for sport and physical activity is, is huge. And, you know, really worried that when we get back to organized sport, that we're going to be able to get all those kids back into it. Yeah. I hope so. The other thing that's really struck me about this pandemic is the importance of outdoor activity mm. and um, in terms of it being, you know, sometimes the only option available for physical activity um, and the safest, given what we know about COVID and outdoor environments. And it, it makes me think, you know, really... Um, saddened by the loss of outdoor education in uh, the school system. Um, you can imagine how much more teaching and learning could have been done if um, we had, you know, physical educators in the public school systems who uh, had been trained in outdoor education and um, using physical activity as a vehicle by which to teach everything from, you know, science to, to math. Uh, it just saddens me that we've lost the outdoor education element of, of uh, physical education in the school systems. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And um, now Gretchen, what I remember we were, we were at the athletes can um, conference and uh, you were presenting um, your prevalence study uh, that you you did um, on on athletes, uh, high level athletes in our country. And you know, maybe you can just ta talk a little bit about you know maybe what inspired you to to partake in, in that to 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 you know put that together and um, and and what you found in there. Sure. Um... So before we did the, the prevalence study, there had been a number of high-profile, um, highly publicized cases of athlete abuses um, in, in this country and, and abroad. And um, the, the question came up about, well, what, what's the extent of this problem? Mm -hmm. um, are, we, are we just hearing the you know the worst of the worst uh, in the media and it's just the tip of the iceberg what types of of harms do athletes experience uh, we we hear mostly of the sexual abuse cases in the media but are there others just you know what what's the scope of the problem so we partnered with athletes can the national organization that represents um, current and former national team members and created a survey, uh, sent it out to um, current national team members and retired national team members who had retired in the last 10 years. We had a thousand responses and we asked them essentially, you know, what, what were their various 
experiences. We didn't use the terms of abuse or harassment or maltreatment. We just asked about the behavior. Have you experienced X or Y? Um, how frequently? By whom? Uh, those sorts of questions. And what we found was similar to prevalent study findings that have been done in other countries, and that is the predominance of psychological abuse. Um, and um, a couple of things I can say about that. First of all, psychological abuse is associated with every other kind of abuse. So in other words, you can't have sexual abuse without also experiencing psychological. Right. Uh, but it can also be uh, a standalone form. And when we reported the results back to the athletes, um, what really struck us was that, or struck them, I should say, was that they hadn't interpreted some of the behaviors they were experiencing mm. as psychological abuse, and yet they certainly met the definition of that. And that really speaks to the fact that many of these behaviors are normalized in sport. They're just kind of accepted as the way sport is, and yet uh, they're also harmful. So one can imagine the, um, and, and I think it's it's really well illustrated by some of the most popular sport films where they show tough coaches, you know, right. yelling and screaming and berating and kicking kids out of practice and applying exercises, punishment. Um, athletes are socialized to accept those behaviors as just being normal, and yet they're they're harmful to them. And um, uh, again, this is where we we really. Uh, have the evidence to suggest that we we need a culture shift, that there are better ways to develop talent and uh, to motivate people to perform at their best than these you know traditionally accepted behaviors. Um, so that was that was a, an important finding from the study. The other important finding that speaks to our earlier conversation is um, that less than uh, 10% of the athletes ever reported their experiences of harm. Mm. And when asked why they didn't report, it was all the reasons we were talking about earlier. Yeah. They didn't know where to take their concerns. They didn't feel they have a safe, they had a safe place. Um, they'd have to take it back to the sport organization. And then they were afraid of, being removed from the team or losing funding, they're very well aware of the potential negative repercussions of of talking about their experiences of harm. So those were the major findings from that study. It, it systemic, <clears throat> the word systemic. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time. Um, you know, I guess learning about this word systemic, um, I was part of a review that um, we asked you to come on as an expert to help help us as a panel really understand. And, and one of the words that, that uh, you know, I, I, I really wanted to get to know uh, better and understand better was systemic. And I think systemic, from what I can gather, 
um, is not doesn't point a finger at an, at an individual, but it points a finger at a system that um, operates in a way uh, that you know everybody just falls in line um, to work uh, with the structure of the systemic system. And, you know, maybe I've got that all wrong, but, you know, to me, that's what I uh, kind of, I guess, learned about, you know, systemic. And and I think that's what we're talking about. I mean, you know, we need, a, you know, some of these behaviors and the way that, um, well, we've always done it that way. Uh, you know, that type of mindset, I think, you know, it's slowly changing, but I think, you know, unless we have a systemic shift and it becomes a priority to shift, uh, you know, the systems and to make the necessary changes needed, uh, you know, we're never going to see the change. I don't believe that we need to see uh, in this space, which is ultimately, um, you know, uh, you know, create create a different style or a different you know, uh, a different system that, you know, is up to speed with the knowledge that we have today. And I just, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I just like to know your thoughts on, you know, you know, just the word systemic and, you know, what you see as systemic and if it persists, if it doesn't persist, you know, it's, um, you know, we hear that word a lot and I don't think that it's discussed enough at a, at a in-depth level to really understand what that word means. Mhm, mhm. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and and I would add that that sometimes these systemic influences are so subtle we don't mm-hmm. know we're being influenced by them, and many of them are unconscious. You know, mm-hmm. we're we're learning this with respect to racism, for example, the unconscious bias that um, influences uh, you know selection decisions, uh, who gets the job and who doesn't. Um, so we're all influenced by these unconscious biases. It, it reminds me of um, one of the other findings from the prevalence study uh, that, that unfortunately has been interpreted in ways we didn't intend. And that was that the most commonly reported perpetrator of harms, whether it was psychological abuse or neglect or whatever, um, uh, except for sexual abuse, I should say, which was most often perpetrated by peers. The other forms were most frequently perpetrated by coaches. And as a result of that, you know, coaches and the, the safe sport movement more broadly, I think coaches have felt quite targeted and uh, I think unfairly so um, not only because the vast majority of them are you know doing a wonderful job and have the best interests of the athletes at the front of mind um, but more importantly that coaches are just part of a system mm-hmm. you know most coaches are hired and fired on the basis of the performance of the team. I mean, imagine if we could hire and fire coaches based on the well-being of the athletes. I mean, that's an example of recreating sport to be more safe 
you know, inclusive and, and welcoming. So coaches are just part of this system. Mm-hmm. And if you move up to more macro levels, um, you know, at the, the national level, for example, um, how are sports funded? They're funded based on performance. Um, right. So, so that's, that is sort of core to all the other. Once you start with that premise, then everything else falls below it. Uh, administrators hire staff who have a performance focus and a track record of performance. Uh, coaches coach to get results and it just trickles down and we lose that focus on well-being. I think the other systemic problem we have in organized sport is this notion that you can't have performance and athlete well-being together at the same time. And this is something I think we need to really take a close look at. And and just a very simple example that that uh, I can give is if any of us ask ourselves, you know, when do we perform the best, whether it's in our jobs, our relationships, our intimate relationships, our, our parenting, we perform best when we feel good about ourselves, when we're healthy, we've had a good night's sleep, we're well hydrated, mm-hmm. we've had yeah. nutritious meals when we feel supported by the people who are important to us. Um, so why would that not hold true for athlete development? And yet we have this kind of funny assumption in sport that if you focus on athlete well-being, that performance is somehow going to suffer. And I think that's a systemic assumption that we have to really take apart and um, and, and decipher and and really help support coaches as part of the system rather than targeting them. That was, that was very well put, uh, Gretchen. I, you know, I agree. And I, I just feel that, you know, the, the, the organizations or the areas in my journey for uh, the last 20 plus years in this area is that, you know, when the, the organizations that, make this type of change a priority within their organization and and make it part of leadership uh you know not just an add-on program that you have to take and because you know this is how we get funding (laughs) um you know i feel that the the organizations that embrace this change are the ones that see real change and real benefit um and that's what we're talking about. And and I think, you know, like, if you look at, for the most part, I mean, schools, I mean, you know, and you talked about this earlier in parenting, um, you know, the way, the way we parent and what we've learned. And, you know, so kids are, you know, the way that they, they don't respond to that heavy hand, psychological type of you know, maltreatment mm-hmm. type of coaching style in sport anymore. And I think, you know, there is another way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, when, when they don't operate by, you know, command and control, 
by adults at home or in schools, why would they accept it, you know, from, from those in sport? And, and you're right. It, it runs contrary to everything we know about not only healthy child development, but talent development in various fields, including sport. Um, so it, it is about not only teaching another way, but supporting and rewarding that. You can imagine what a sport organization would look like if, for example, athletes had a say in uh, evaluating their own experiences, um, which I don't think we do enough of. Even young kids can respond to their levels of enjoyment, the friendships they made in sport, the skills they learned, um, and and if athletes had a voice in that, and coaches were rewarded and promoted on those bases, then we'd have a very different, very different system with different outcomes. Yeah. Well, and I think that's going to be. I mean, we need to be we need to be making sure that we can re-engage uh, youth and and. Uh, you know, families into sport, uh, you know, coming out of COVID because, um, you know, they're, they're, they've, you know, whatever they've, they've been out of it and they found possibly other, other things that, you know, that maybe not as, as, uh, as healthy as, as sport, but I think we need to, we need to put a real focus on, um, making sure that we, we get, get those young people back and, and families back engaged, uh, uh, as we come out of COVID and, and I think we're, you know, we're, we're coming down to the last uh, few minutes, Gretchen. And I just, you know, I really wanted to just ask you, is, is there anything that you, you would like to uh, uh, make sure that uh, you get across in the podcast? And, you know, we, all of our, you know, this show is going to all the coaches um, that Respect Group has trained over 1.6 million people across this country. So, um, you know, is there any is there any last messages that you feel that we didn't cover that that you may want to uh, 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 leave us with or or, or have on mm-hmm. on the podcast? Yeah, um, I think we've covered everything, but it uh, perhaps. Um a way to, to summarize it is sport continues to offer so many benefits to individuals and communities and the public good at, at large. And the vast, vast majority of coaches and other sport leaders are contributing to the realization of those benefits. And I, I hope this next um, chapter in the safe sport movement really shifts the focus from how do we prevent harms? How do we prevent the maltreatment or the bad stuff? And instead, uh, shift the focus to how do we optimize experiences for everybody? You know, the athletes, the coaches, the parents, the volunteers, and so on. Um, and how do we create these safe, inclusive, welcoming environments for everyone. Because I think if we can do that, all the other outcomes will occur quite naturally. Yes. Well, that's a great way to, uh, to end this conversation, uh, Gretchen. And I, you know, just 
in closing, I, I really would like to thank you, not not just for coming on the podcast, but um, you know, I, I have known of your work and and your commitment and your passion to making a difference uh, in this area, uh, in our country and abroad. And, um, you know, I want to thank you for that. Um, and -hmm. I want to thank you for being bold, uh, and in an area that, uh, 30 years ago, uh, you know, it wasn't easy to be involved in, uh, as, (laughs) as I know also. And, you know, that took a lot Mm -hmm. of courage and I just, uh, want to say thank you for that. Um, and, and also thank you for, for joining me today, um, you know, to have this conversation to, you know, to empower those, you know, I want to say thank you to the coaches that, you know, and everybody that gives their time and that's involved to, to help our young people grow. And I think their, their role is more important now than ever. And I think it's, Mm -hmm. it's maybe a little bit underestimated how important, uh, you know, that position of volunteer coach or, or a Olympic coach is in, in um, the athletes life in general, not just as an athlete, I think uh, they have a a, a big role there. And um, yeah. And I just want to say thank Mm you, uh, Gretchen. And, and I, and I also want, um, you to know that um, respect respect group will be making a hundred dollar uh, uh, donation um, to a charity of your choice, which uh, you can you can send us uh, the charity that you would like that hundred dollars to go to, uh, along with our friends at Canadian Tire and uh, Sports Check, um, and. Yeah, and that's a wrap. And and be sure to subscribe to our show and your podcast app so we can stay connected. This show is made possible by Respect Group. And to learn more about their work and vision, visit respectgroupinc.com. And thank you all for tuning in. And Gretchen, thank you again for joining us. And I look forward to our continued work to, to keep moving the issues forward. Thank you, Sean. It's been an absolute privilege.